mean it when we say we want to create a safe place for people to do that and ask your questions and bring all your doubts and fears and all those things. Uh, we love that part of this. And uh, we hope, that, again, that you find your community here in a place that you can really feel at home and connect with God and connect with others. And so just thankful that you're here. Uh, we're in week two of this series called uh, Devoted. And so as Lacey said earlier, you know, when we came back from sabbatical and we went through all this, there were some things that were stirring uh, in our hearts. And uh, in particular, this theme of devotion. And in uh, the premise of this whole entire series that we'll be in for the next probably six weeks more of this, but uh, the whole premise is simply this, that when we look out and we see that people walking away from their faith or this big thing around deconstruction right now and, and, uh, and people kind of just being stiff-arming the church and everything. Uh, there is this reality that um, when we take a step back and try and look objectively, um, you can believe in something, but it doesn't change your life. When you fall in love with something, it does, right? Like you, when you, if you've ever been in love with another person, uh, you can believe in the idea of love, but you kind of just operate. But then when you're actually in love with the other person and you're with that person, it changes your whole life, right? You'll even do some crazy things for them, right? And, uh, and so that's the premise of what this whole uh, series is going to be about, that we want to be able to fall in love with Jesus, and that through that, that's where we experience this deep devotion to his teachings and this deep devotion to what our faith is supposed to be like. And, um, and so um, this series will be a little bit more on the, the heavier end of things. And, um, but it's, it's just something that was like so deep within us because we talked about godly wisdom last week. And, and, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give a little, like for those of you who weren't here, I'll, I'll catch you up really quickly. But... Um, I, do I want you to make better decisions in your life? Yes. yes, right? That's a good thing, right? To make better decisions and it's like, I'm, and to have less regrets. Those are all like really good things. But really what I deeply desire for our community is a soul transforming faith that reshapes everything. And what we talked about um, last week was this idea of the fear of the Lord. And uh, Proverbs 1-7 actually uh, lists this out really well. It, it says this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise its wisdom and instruction. All right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. And so when we talk about wisdom and we talk about what this looks like, wisdom is, is being able to see the world the way God sees it. Wisdom is being able to see people the way God sees it. Wisdom is being able to see your life the way God sees your life. That is, is wisdom. And so we want, that's good godly wisdom, I should say. And so to start with, and it's the fear of the Lord. Like, like that's what it begins with. You, you can't get godly wisdom any other way. It has to start with a deep fear, an awe, a respect, an honor of the Lord. Uh, and this is what we highlighted last week. These are signs that we aren't having the proper fear of the Lord. The one, we seek out people first instead of God. Two, we devalue the word of God. Three, we lack boundaries. And four, we lose sensitivity to sacred moments. Um, this is what we talked about last week. I mean, if you want some signs and begin to understand that maybe, maybe I don't have the, the, the right fear of the Lord, um, these are four uh, big signs in our lives that would say like, Maybe I don't have the proper awe and respect and honor and reverence for who God is. And we begin to, to see this. And, and the truth is, is like the reason why this starts to happen, um, I believe, is that we start listening to the wrong voices. 
we start listening to the wrong voices. And, and that can be obviously some, like some, something might be news, something maybe social media. Uh, it also might be the inner voice that you are, that you have in your own head, um, the thing that you keep telling yourself, the story you keep saying. Uh, we could be listening to the wrong voices. And, and when we're not listening to the truth and we're not listening to the right kind of voice in our lives, we will believe anything. We will start doing anything. We'll start following anything. And it reminded me of this uh, little video um, that I saw um, not too long ago um, that I was like, oh, this is what it's like to listen to whatever uh, voice um, that we have. So can we play this? And we'll play it like two or three times if it's working. We good? No? We're good? All right, maybe we're frozen. All right, that is not the video. Um, just let me know if it, just keep going. All right. All right, it's not gonna work. So there was a video that actually really detailed out um, what it would look like to listen um, to uh, the wrong voice. But um, listen, here's what happens. Um, there are things in our lives where people start speaking in such a way, uh, and this could be for decades for some of us. And it could be these voices that uh, start telling us a certain narrative, a certain story that makes us believe something that actually isn't of God. That makes us believe things that aren't true uh, of how God thinks about us, that aren't true about our identity, that aren't true about the reality of who God is in the midst of all of this stuff. And so I want to talk about that a little bit further today. I want to add a second layer to this whole idea of being able to understand uh, what the fear of the Lord uh, actually is. I was uh, reading a book over um, our break for, uh, by this guy named Mark Sayers. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Non-Anxious Presence. And I was just, I was like, oh man, this is just such a good uh, book. Um, he details out uh, how we got to really where we are in our world today and what does it mean to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of it. And part of what he starts talking about um, is there are certain things that um, really started shifting and changing in the culture. One of them actually was this group called the Rand Corporation, R-A-N-D, uh, Rand Corporation. They were established in 1948, and it was based out of like this military um, kind of mindset of, of how to keep the world safe. And so that was kind of the, the front end of it. But then they started dabbling into a bunch of other things. And uh, in the midst of that, they started getting into social sciences and technology and, and all that stuff. And so even if you go to their, reps, their website today, it would be like, we want to try to make the world safer, right? Um, but what it is, it's, it's a think tank uh, of people around the world that kind of gather together and um, try to figure out how to like essentially move people in a certain direction, okay? And so one of the big changes that happened within this corporation, they started really shaping not just public policy, but the way um, military kind of went after things too and how we began to see other people. But some of the other stuff they did was start leveraging um, technology and data mining and different things around research to begin to shape the way people thought. And so the end result um, was this kind of, uh, they started pushing people more towards like a consumeristic mindset, uh, more about individual rights, um, uh, really focused on a kind of a nationalistic like pride and um, where we are. And so things began to dramatically shift in the way people went about making decisions, how politicians would begin to like try and get our votes and, and how marketing material would get out of, uh, would come out like on TVs and everything. So this started really shaping everything back in 1959. And it was interesting, Sarah starts like detailing out um, some of those things. And, and what he talks about was, was back then was, we'll just do this as like an example of um, we have this a building, right, in that we were based off of institutions, 
right? Um, we were an institution-based society. So you, had, you would have like a church. Uh, you had government. You had education, right? Um, you have Wall Street. And these institutions uh, were what carried the cultural anxiety, all right, so, uh, and so when there were things like happening within the world, um, we looked to institutions to help solve them. We looked to institutions to help us think. When we got fearful of what was going on in the world, we looked to institutions to be like, hey, what are the answers and how do we begin to handle all this stuff? And so what ended up happening right around 1959, 1960s, this shift started happening and it was very subtle. And that shift started point, um, pointing people more towards the individual. All right, and the individual became more of a thing. And then, of course, when the internet comes along, my gosh, like everything like explodes in the midst of this. And so when the internet comes along, this part, basically, uh, this part goes away. It just goes away. Because what ends up happening is they're so individualistic now, and this is what uh, everything looks like. It's all networked, right? So it's not about institutions. It's all about networking. And then networking is of the individual. And so here's what ends up happening is you begin to try and figure out who you are in a network. And so it's no longer a bunch of people in an institution together. It's like, no, where's my network? And, and you got to go to that network. But that network is like really driven by a particular ideal. And so even when cancel culture has like been around, right, how does that happen? It's because when a network says that you should be canceled, the network speaks. And so there's no nuance in a network. There's no um, ability to kind of speak into different kinds of issues. So you mean we use something like, uh, we use abortion, for example, right? You'll have life over here and choice over here. You're in one or the other. If you have, you have nuance, you're not involved in their network. If you want to talk about it at a bigger level, you can't be in their network. And so you're, you're lost. And, and then and in, if, you, and if you try and like figure out how to have nuance within this conversation, in this culture, um, they, they kick you out or they cancel you. And name any kind of topic, all right, any topic, this is what it looks like now. So it's no longer about like an institutional discussion. It's no longer about trusting. Like if I was like, how many of you guys trust the government? Like no one's like, yeah, I mean, I, they're really great. They got our best interests in mind, right? We don't do that. Like how many of you guys trust the education system right now? Right? It's like, if we were to, well, I hope you would say you would trust the church to some degree, but guess what? If I inject a truth sermon to everyone here, but do you really trust the church, big C, capital church? I guarantee you everyone in this room would say no. And so you begin to see that, man, things have gotten really broken. And Sayers goes on to actually say this. He says, with no agreed upon defining story or shared values, identity becomes something that the participant in the network society must search for themselves. Many search for meaning and identity in regionalism, nationalism, political parties, single issues, sexuality, or self-expression. He's just defining the reality of the culture that we live in. This becomes such a big deal because when this is our reality, which it is, we have to have godly wisdom within it. And how do you begin to like live out your faith? And how do you begin to engage the, the, the community around us? Another social scientist um, from, he quote, he, Sayers actually quotes this social scientist who says this, we're in a peculiar kind of unsettling situation in which nothing really matters, in which hierarchies and standing norms disappear, in which sacred systems and symbols are mocked at and ridiculed, in which authority in any form is questioned, taken apart, and subverted. This is the world we live in. 
This is not new news. You might not have ever put words to it in that manner, but this is not new news, right? This is the world we live in. And so how do you have godly wisdom in the midst of this? Like, what does it look like um, to have a fear of the Lord? And, and here's what ends up being um, a reality for us. You know, every time you turn on a TV and, or every time you use an internet um, or anytime you're using one of your subscription plans, whatever, like we're all shaped by algorithms, right? Like they, 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 your podcasts, you know, like anything. Like the second you start searching something, listening something to watching something, it creates an algorithm for every person in this room. And then all you get suggested to you are things that kind of beef up whatever that is. And so I, when I was like kind of processing some of this uh, this week, um, I just wrote down this question. Are you more shaped by an algorithm or the spirit of God? Because so often when we get in some of these discussions that are really pivotal, that really shape our devo- like what we're devoted to, it seems like, it seems like quite often we're more shaped by an algorithm rather than the spirit of God. But to be shaped by the spirit of God, you have to be devoted to following Jesus. To sh- be shaped by the spirit of God, we have to be willing to step into this reality and be like, all right, what does God actually want for me? And what does it look like to actually follow him? I want to, I want to, show you how um, the Bible, um, so we're going to nerd out for just a second, all right? So just stick with me. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, I hope this will make some sort of sense. Um, but I, wanna, I want you to see the beauty of, and the brilliance of the authors of the Bible when they start talking about the human condition, because this is why it's such a big deal. And this is why I always want us to like look at things like I'm going to share with you guys about Scripture, um, because what we're going through right now is not new. Literally nothing new about it. Nothing new about it. As I shared last week, um, we, I've been, I was reading so much about the early church, like first and second century, uh, second century church, and I'm like, huh, it's as if they wrote this in 2022. And I'm not kidding at all. Like it's the same exact stuff. And we walk around and be like, I wonder what we should do here. And I'm like, 2,000 years ago, they already showed us. But it's just a question of what we want to be devoted to. And so I was thinking about the Bible and what it does. And let me nerd out for a second. In the beginning of the Bible is the story of the Garden of Eden. And here's what the Garden of Eden was really trying to get us to see, um, to some degree. That God creates, there's this new creation and when he creates, and when everything is the way it's supposed to be, you get to experience heaven on earth. Okay? So that's like a sim- very simple way to kind of view the Garden of Eden. All right? That it is heaven on earth. It's the way things should be. It's the, the way things are supposed to be laid out. It's the way, thing, the way God made everything to be. And I'm like, all right, they're in a good relationship with God. It's, it's Adam and Eve, right? And, and, and everything's like they're treating the earth the way it's supposed to be, everything. But here's what we see in the story. Adam and Eve... So here they are, they're a uh, new creation, all right? So they're, they're this new creation. And then what ends up happening uh, with Adam and Eve, this says that there's a tree. And on this tree uh, uh, was, uh, it was known as the tree of good and evil, all right? There's a tree of good and evil. And, um, and in this tree, uh, we begin to see um, that someone comes to them, a different voice comes to them besides God. And this voice asked them to eat what? Do you guys remember? A fruit, right? Wasn't an apple? 
Who knows? But fruit. And, and so we could see this, this whole fruit thing. Um, were Adam and Eve uh, clothed or naked before they ate the fruit? For those of you guys who know. Naked. Get to say that in church today. <laughs> we're naked, right? And then what ends up happening is um, we, we end up hearing the story. So they, 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 do they eat the fruit or do they not eat the fruit? They eat the fruit, right? Why do they eat the fruit? Because they decided they wanted to do things their own way. So they had this decision between good and evil. The way of God or not. They had a they decision, do I want to honor God's name and fear him or make him common and make me on par with God? All right, and so that becomes the story. Um, it doesn't end there. They have kids, right? Their first two kids are Cain and Abel. Cain does something really interesting. He gets mad and anger kind of burns inside of him and everything. And Cain commits the first murder in the Bible. And uh, we begin to see that Cain then gets cast out. But then Cain does something uh, with his city. He ends up building later that's filled with violence and rebellion. All right? So violence and violence. So this is what we see. We see new creation. We see a tree with fruit. We see naked. We see the choice between good and evil. We see Cain and Abel, the sons and everything. And what do we see? That the choices of Adam and Eve were not just individual. That there were generational impact after that. It started something. All right? And so guess what? Your choices that you make are not individual choices. They start something. They do. They start, and some of those things create generational issues. But they start something. Our choices are actually communal. They're not just individual. And so when we start, when all the time it's about individual rights, it's about individual choice, it's about individual, I'm like, it's never just that. It never is. And so to start thinking like that it is, it's like, man, then I'm not really paying attention to how really God laid all this out and what it means. Noah, for those of you who know the story, He's on an ark, right? But here's what's interesting about Noah's story. Um, at the end of the story, the flood happens. And then if you read the, the, we'll do a series on this in the future, but if you read the story of Noah and the ark, what ends up happening is that um, how the writers detail out after the floods rise and they're floating on top and they start to go down, um, the details of the story exactly mirror the details of the story in Genesis chapter one, day for day. The writers are doing this intentionally to bring us to something. And then they start talking about a new creation off of Noah. When Noah gets out of the ark, what does he do? There's some fruit involved. Then part of the story with Noah is he's naked. For those of you that know the story, he's naked afterwards. But then there's a choice that ends up happening with Noah. He chooses to get wasted. Not a good choice. good and evil. He chooses to get drunk. And then here's what happens. Noah's sons, in this case, it's Ham, says, does something. Noah's son ends up, what we see in the, the story, it says it commits a sexual act. Now, a lot of people think it's against Noah, but, and I'll explain this a different time, but it's actually against his mom. In all likelihood, he raped his mom, that Ham did. So here's the reality of what ends up happening. It's the same exact story. They're just talking about the same things. These writers are trying to get you like, like, all right, like here's what ends up happening. And here's what happens after this. After Ham starts leading all three of these descendants, and then we get to the Tower of Babel, the city of great violence and through Babylonian and everything. 
right? So of rebellion. And then we get to Abraham, right? Abraham, he gets a blessing from God. New creation. Where does he receive the, the blessing? There's a tree involved. Then he has to make a choice between good and evil. Well, how so? He has to make a choice if he wants to trust the voice of God that he's going to have a lot of kids because at that point he could ha uh, Sarah couldn't have any, but God told him he's going to have a bunch. But he had a choice to make. Do you want to trust the voice of God or not? And he chose not to at one point. And what happens? Ishmael and Isaac. He sleeps with another woman and doesn't listen to the voice of God. And all of a sudden, the sons are involved again. And then these sons create rebellion and they fight against each other. And there's generational issues from that. Solomon. <laughs> what did Solomon pray, pray for? Do you guys remember? Huh. But really what the scripture says is he prayed to know good and evil. And then with Solomon, he has this word, and then, he has, and then the story is just the same. And Solomon's sons become kings, and, they, and Solomon doesn't actually choose to know the wisdom of God the whole entire life. He ends up having between uh, his concubines and his wives were about a thousand of them. That feels like a lot, right? <laughs> and, and he does that, and then has a bunch of kids, and then those kids end up, some of them being kings, and like, it's, all hell is breaking loose. Do the writers of the Bible do this intentionally? Yes. yes. They do it intentionally to get us to keep seeing that the story of humanity is always the same. It's the same. It's what voice are you listening to? What are you really devoted to? What is really shaping how you perceive the world around you? And do you really want to experience heaven on earth or not? And it's trying to get us to understand this rhythm of everything is the same. It's the same. It's the same. It is the same. Jesus continues the same way when he starts teaching. Um, when Jesus starts teaching, he says, hey, the kingdom of God is like, and he kind of gives all these descriptions. What is he doing? He's actually using garden language. Here's how he's using garden language. When he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this, um, he's saying that, listen, if you want to experience heaven on earth, this is how you live your life. If you want to experience heaven on earth, this is how, this is what you get devoted to. So um, for those of you guys that are not familiar with the Bible, there's this big section in this book of Matthew which details out uh, the life of Jesus. And in this one section, it's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like Jesus' greatest hits. And, and it's this series of, uh, this big teaching, this series, series of sayings that he's like, this is what heaven on earth looks like. This is what it looks like. And he gives us what it's supposed to be like. And he challenges those who are supposedly devoted to him to actually live their life in this, in this manner. And Jesus, of course, sets the example um, in the best possible way. So he says things like, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Um, blessed are the meek, like all this stuff. And, and he talks about like being blessed. And then he uses this one in uh, Matthew chapter, uh, verse eight. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will, what's that? See God. The pure in heart. Um, here's what, when the Bible talks about purity, here's basically one of the ways to see this around purity is this, that, and, and this is what it's referring to here, that purity is saying this, when something is holy, you leave it holy. 
If you make it common, it's impure. Okay? It's not like this idea of like, oh, something necessarily like evil. You can make something common and make it impure. So one of the ways that you might have grown up with this idea is um, maybe you grew up with uh, never taking the Lord's name in vain, right? And so you, you would not say like, oh my, right? It feels weird to say, and it's like, don't, don't say that. You're going to take the Lord's name in vain. Now there's more to it than just saying it. You got to live it. You take the Lord's name in vain when you don't actually live out the reality of who God is. Okay? So, but at the same time, you don't want to make the name common. So if you keep saying, you know, oh my God, or you keep saying Jesus Christ, or you keep saying, th- like, to make it common is to make it unholy. To make it common is to make it impure. And so what Jesus is saying, if you make him common in your life, then guess what? You're not going to see God in your life. You just won't see it. Because it's supposed to be set apart as holy, devoted to the holiness of who he is. I was, um, this, this past July 4th, I was sitting in um, uh, Myrtle Beach and we're watching the fireworks go off and everything. And, and, and some of you guys aren't going to like what I'm about to say and just bear with me and don't hear what you want to hear. How about that? <laughs> we're sitting there watching the fireworks and I just... I was thinking about, there's some other things that transpired that day that just made my skin crawl, like where we were. Um, but I was thinking about this moment, and I was like, for some reason, started thinking about Jesus' teaching of we need to love our enemies. I was thinking about what a weird thing we do of celebrating war and death. And I'm like, I feel like this is weird as a Christian. To be like, shouldn't this be a day of mourning? That like, man, at one point in time, there was a war that happened where a lot of image bearers killed a lot of other image bearers. And it feels odd to like celebrate it with fireworks. And here in... I was like, is there something here to begin to wrestle with? Listen, if you go celebrate fireworks next year and you're lighting those suckers off, I'm not telling you you're a sinner, you're making something impure. I'm just saying, like, do, we, do we wrestle with some of these things? To maybe take a second and be like, man, I don't know. And then started thinking, like, then they were playing God Bless America. And I've thought this before, but, but even when they were playing God Bless America on our way out, and I was like, Sure, like, I, I do want God to bless America. But as a Christian, I want God to bless the whole world. I don't want him to bless America more than somebody else. Because there are, there are image bearers in Switzerland, and they should get blessed just as much as America. There are image bearers in Pakistan. They should get blessed just as much as America. Why would I do that? And that's not dishonoring to anyone or disrespectful. Anyway, it's just like, from a Christian standpoint, I'm like, man, I don't. It just feels odd and maybe something to wrestle with. And I started thinking about how often like our Christianity gets associated with our nation. I think actually that means we are making Christianity in the name of Jesus too common and we're making it impure. Because if we're really devoted to him, I think we would start thinking very differently about a lot of different things. And, And so one of the ways, and one of the questions I just want us to sit with for just a second here is this. 
How have I made Jesus common? Forget the whole bigger nation thing. Just me. How in my life have I made Jesus common? When we make him common, we make his name impure. When we make him common, we are not pure in heart. When we make him common, we won't see God. So you might be making him common in your relationship and who you're dating. You might be making him common with your friends. You might be making his name common at work. You might be making his name common with your bank account. You might be making his name common in your marriage. You might be making his name common when you just simply say you're a Christian, but you're actually not devoted to actually following him. And in that, we don't see God. This is why I said last week why I get so fired up about these bigger discussions around big topics that people argue about and whatever. And I'm like, do we start with the fear of the Lord and having a purity in heart to make sure that as we engage this stuff that we are not making the word of God and Jesus' name common before we enter it? Paul, actually, um, one of the writers of the New Testament who wrote a lot of different letters. I want you guys to see something because he uses similar language in Philippians 2. He writes this letter. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, this is great, right? Not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. I mean, this faith you proclaim. Continue to work it out with what? Say it. Is that how we live our lives? Remember we were talking about like, last week we said, man, this is a sacred moment, right? What we're doing here. Did we come in this morning with like, just a sense of like, just like fear and trembling? Like, wow, this is a sacred moment we're walking into. Or did we come in just kind of bebopping like, it's cool, like I'm good to be at church. I wonder what this place is going to be like if you're new, right? Or maybe you had like a rough time in the car. And you might be thinking the person you're with should be fear and tremble, right? <laughs> but like, can you imagine? Can you imagine the difference in this room where several hundred people come in and they walk in and what if everyone walked in with fear and trembling and the sacredness of the moment and be like, whoa, I want to be pure in heart because I want to see God right now. It begins to change everything. And he starts detailing some stuff. He says, for it is God who works in you and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless, and look at that language, impure. Children of God of fault in a warped and crooked generation is what we're living in right now. Then you will what? Shine like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So let me highlight a couple quick things and we'll be done. Here's what fear and trembling does in the fear of the Lord. It eliminates pride. <laughs> uh, it is God working within us and we can't get that twisted. 
It's like when um, people will say things like, man, I prayed, for, I, I was there, like I led them to Christ. No, you didn't. The Spirit of God led them to Christ. God was working with you in that moment. You did not lead. The Spirit of God led you and was working in you to help someone get to see who God is. So it's this humility that begins to be built up inside of us. This humility that will make us fearful, and I really mean this, fearful to ever lose a deep connection to God. Like a fearful to be like, man, I want to I make sure that I date in the right way because I just don't want to lose my connection to God in the midst of this relationship that I hope is for life. Man, I want to lose my connection to God at work because, man, how cool is this? Is that I get to be like a, a light shining in my workplace. There's this humility that begins to go with it. The second thing that it'll do is it stops us from complaining and it builds resilience in us. How many of you guys love complainers? Right? No one's like, yeah. Love to be a whiner. Right? Um, but I think when we start seeing God more in our life, um, we will start complaining less because as we sang earlier, we start seeing uh, his mercies are new every morning, you know? We start seeing the, the, the reality in our pain and our suffering and the, and the things that happen in life that we can actually be like, you know what? Great is your faithfulness. Because like, God, I know that in the midst of this, like I have hope in who you are and I'm going to stand firm here. And be resilient and like feel the pain and feel and mourn and grieve. Also, yes. But I also have hope. I'm also grateful for your power. You know, we're in, we're in, a, um, in an era, which I, which I love, uh, where there's so much, there's like a huge focus on mental health, right? And emotional health. And we should. <laughs> we should. We love it. We do a lot with our staff. We don't, Lacey and I just went and on part of our sabbatical. We did one of the my, my most favorite things we've ever done which was go to see these counselors that we know and, and um, we got to share our stories and they got to do some really cool things with our stories and help us see things about ourselves that like we never seen before. And it was like wonderful. So I am all in on that stuff, right? I love it. And it's, and it's so good for us to do. And we need to learn how to grieve and we need to learn how to mourn. We don't do that very well. But there's this other piece to it too where it's like, but you can't just stay there. You can sit in it for a little bit and you should, but you can't just stay there. It's like we did these bumper stickers, um, which are really cool, like a while back. And one of them said this. It said, um, you're doing the best you can. And I joked around with our staff that I'm like, maybe we should have a bumper sticker on the other side of the car that just says, but if you're not, you should do more. <laughs> right? Because sometimes we do need to hear you're doing the best you can. Some other times you need to hear like, you're actually not. Right? And so there's this, this piece. And so we begin to see, we begin to see that my, I, we want to have resilience and, and having a fear of the Lord will build, build this in us. And then the last thing is it purifies, purifies us. First John 3. So John was another writer in the New Testament, a close follower of Jesus. And, and again, this purifying element is like, I'm going to keep God's name holy. I'm going to be devoted to that. And I, and I do that through the fear of the Lord. First John 3 says this. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Here's what he's saying. 
that all who say they have the hope of Jesus, here's what you want to do, and here's what I want to do. Man, I, I want the Spirit of God to continue to purify me. I don't want to settle. I want to make sure the Spirit of God and His voice is just like continuously in my life. Listen, there are things that I've thought, there's things that I think that as the Spirit of God continues to work in me that will continue to correct me. <laughs> I don't get it all right. But man, at the heart level, we need to be, all of us need to be folks that are like, man, if I'm going to say I, I love Jesus and I want to follow him and I want to be devoted to him, that God, would you continue to purify my heart? Remember what Jesus says, that those that are pure in heart can what? See God. So if we want wisdom in this crazy world that we're in, if you want wisdom in your crazy life that you're in, whether you made those choices or not, we've got to purify our hearts. Be devoted to the realities of who God is. So we're going to take communion together and then we're going to sing one more song. And so um, if you can take your communion elements out. And you can actually open them now if you want to. If you don't have one and you want one, raise your hand and someone will come around to you. They're the toughest things to open that you'll ever have to open, probably. Um, we're fighting for the Lord right now. But I want us to, to pause here. Um, communion's like the super cool thing that we get to do, y'all. Um, this is a time where, like, when I talk about, like, communion and holding things with reverence, and with a pure heart. This is one of those moments. It's why in scripture, when uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about that like, we, we, we gloss over this part, but that people got sick when they abused communion. Why is that? Because they started treating things as common. And what communion is, for those of you that don't know, is you have this bread and you have this juice, and it's to remember the reality of who Jesus is and his death and then eventual resurrection for us. And what this means and what it's supposed to be devoted to the realities of Jesus. And so, man, this little moment of being like, we clear our hearts and our minds. And it's a sacred moment that we remember together. So hold that bread in your hand and juice. And God, as we hold this bread, we remember your body up on that cross being beaten, spit at, mocked, And in that, we recognize that like in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the things that we go through, that you're with us every step of the way. So go ahead and eat the bread. 
We take this juice and it symbolizes not only your blood being shed, but the establishment of this new promise, this new hope, this new covenant that's going to happen through Jesus. And a reality that we could sing things like great is your faithfulness because of the reality of, of Jesus. And so go ahead and drink the juice. We're going to sing um, the song and band, you guys can come up. But before we sing it, I just, I want to say a little something about the song because I, I was sitting in the back during practice and um, I have the luxury of every week having a worship service for me um, as they're practicing. Um, I was sitting back there and as the words came up on the song, um, actually, can we throw up the lyrics here if it, or is it restarting? Um, whenever you get a chance. The, the lyrics of this song, there's this one part where it talks about that you've got this lion roaring inside of you. Um, can we go to that, that little hook? Um, and it'll start talking about um, this moment, like, I, you know, I'm going to throw up my hands. And, and when you sing the words, like, because all I have is a hallelujah. And I start, and as a sitting bath, I was like, man, some people in this room are just going through it right now. And all they have is this hallelujah, this praise to God, because, like, they don't know what else to do. And then I started thinking about some of the other folks in the room right now that are in a really good spot that you are praising God because you've already been through it. And here's what I know, that when you raise your hands and you sing that hallelujah and you sing it for all you want, your praises are helping the other people who are trying to get to where you are. This beauty of hallelujah. And then there's this one line that talks about this, um, the line that's roaring inside of you. And I was thinking about a trip to Africa. And these lions, like, came by our car. And, like, you know, in the zoo, lions look nice. In the wild, they do not. They're like, they're intimidating. And, they're, and, and here's, here's what I was saying. I was like, oh, man. It's the same thing. I was like, folks that are really hurting right now. I was like, I just started to pray. I was like, God, would they begin to remember the line you've put inside of them? So that as they sing that, like, that they're, they know that they've got a voice inside them. That's your voice that can come out. And to those that have actually come out, like you, you've been through it, like you're in like a good spot, right? And you kind of know this part that, man, you should be singing that part with all of your guts. Because you know it's reality. And in through that, we all are just grateful for who God is. So you stand and sing this last song. Let's...